and we are back with another uh, virtual class sort of in the bunker but trying to get ourselves out of the bunker um, someone asked me again the other day uh, how long uh, we would keep doing this it's a class we started in January and we've continued on and then when the COVID bug cooties came along then we moved it to virtual online um, still the plan guys is that we're going to keep on rolling with this on uh, every Sunday at 2 o'clock uh, until we're back in church uh, who knows when that will be um, but it makes a fabulous Sunday for me and uh, for whenever you watch this I hope that it uh, either helps you have a great uh, Sunday helps you have a great Tuesday uh, whenever you do that but I just think it's one of those things that uh, um, we get this little bit of bump with a little bit more information. Um, sometimes people have also asked uh, about the possibility of doing it as a come follow me as we're tracking the Book of Mormon. My sense is, is that uh, we do pretty well with online resources to aid with come follow me. Uh, and and I, there are a myriad of really good ones, and I would suggest that you find them and be able to utilize those. I'm hoping that what we're doing is, is a bit uh, in addition to that, uh, even though I think you will see in some of the, the next classes we have in the next few weeks, I'm going to be drawing a few more of these examples of covenants and promises to the fathers, and you're going to find it in the Book of Mormon because one of the things that inspired this class in the first place is wanting to be able to come up with understanding what the promises of the fathers are and they're deeply embedded in the Book of Mormon and I'm hoping that you're as you're doing come follow me and tracking in the Book of Mormon you will also see those covenants and those promises made to Nephite prophets drawing on Old Testament prophets about the promises that would be made to the future generations of Nephites and Lamanites and Gentiles. And, and it shows very well in the Book of Mormon. So hopefully this is an aid uh, to that. Now, on top of that then, um, just as a reminder, uh, last week we talked uh, about uh, Sacred Saturdays. And uh, that was that period of time uh, between the death of Christ and his resurrection and appearance to his disciples. That valley of doubt between did it really happen? Uh, did it really occur? Was our faith in vain? Uh, and we talked a lot about how each of us have those sacred Saturdays, I believe, where we're trapped in the valley of belief and doubt uh, and trying to move forward in a way that enables us to continue to have faith and believe uh, even when we're in the midst of those doubting valleys that will come to us. Now, I want to mention this uh, along the lines of uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I've often said that one of the keys to trying to understand the scriptures is that we need to know that God is consistent in what he does. And, and so part of being able to understand the scriptures is understanding divine patterns that occur 
consistently in the scriptures enough that when you start seeing certain things, you start looking for other things. And if certain things are there but other things are not, you start questioning, okay, there's something different happening here. Uh, and what is it? So let me give you kind of the grandest uh, divine pattern of it all, I think. Uh, and we could probably reduce everything that's been written in scriptures and, and uh, from general authorities and general conference and everything and put it into one little ball here uh, and make it amazingly simple and amazingly complex all at the same time. That's what we do without any extra cost uh, to you. Uh, added service, right? Okay, so the the largest divine pattern that I know of is, is the one where uh, ultimately uh, our heavenly parents love us and intend to do something in our behalf. God loves us, has in, has his own desires and things for us, and wants to do an intervention that will involve something for our, our greatest benefit. Why? Because he loves us. Now, when he's, when he's desirous to do something and he's planning on doing something, what's the ne very next thing that he does? Well, again, Amos tells us, remember, that he doesn't do anything without telling his prophets. And we'll talk about why he does that in just a second. But I, I want you to see the pattern. The pattern is that when he designs to, to do it, he desires to do it, he prepares to do it, he then tells his prophets he's going to do it. He's going to tell somebody. God doesn't operate in secret. He's going to tell you what he's going to do. Um, and then what does he instruct the prophets who have just been told what it is that God intends to do? Sure enough. He instructs them to write down that he's going to do it. So not only is he going to do it, he tells the prophets he's going to do it, and he says, write it down um, that I'm going to do it so that nobody can miss it. It's, sometimes it's, it's carved on parchment, but oftentimes, think about Moses, it's actually even carved in stone uh, that he's literally going to do that uh, as, he, as he moves forward. So he instructs them he's going to do it. Then, then what does he tell these prophets to do? Tell people he's going to do it. So he's going to instruct them to tell everyone that he will do it. No surprises here. Uh, whether it's going to be popular or not, uh, these prophets who have not just written down that he's going to do it, now they're going to openly preach, God says he will do this. Sodom and Gomorrah, here's what's coming. People of the flood, here's what's going to happen. People of Jerusalem, God has said he will do, and he will do it if you don't. So, no surprises. So, uh, now, isn't it interesting that not only does he instruct everybody that he's going to do it, then what happens just before he does it? He warns them he's going to do it. Okay? Think, about, think about John the Baptizer, as he's sometimes called. And he said, it's about to happen. 
the Lamb of God is going to come and I'm not worthy to un untie his shoe kind of thing, but he's about to be here. Uh, and this was like the, the warning just before. Think about Lehi preaching to Jerusalem. It's about to happen. You guys have messed up and the Syrians are coming. Um, better do it. Okay. So uh, he instructs the prophets to tell him he's going to do it. He warns them right before he does it. Then what does he do? Well, then he does it. He does exactly what he said he would do. He telegraphed it a long time ago. He warned them shortly before he did it. And then surprise, surprise, he did it. Uh, I would guess that there were people in, in Sodom and Gomorrah who went, what? <laughs> what's, what's going on? Or people of Noah saying, uh, it's raining. Well, yeah, he said it would. Well, I just didn't think he would. And he's doing it. Wow. Okay. Hey, wait a minute, uh, the Nephite said. Um, it's not getting dark. The sun went down and it's still light. Really? Yes. Wow. Wonder if he ever said, oh, that's right. He did tell us he was going to do that. Okay. What a shocker. And over and over and over, the Lord is having to say, I do what I say I'm going to do. Don't doubt me on this. I will do it. And not only that, if you're not sure, go look what was carved in stone. I said I would do it. And then I did it. Now, what is he going to do after he's done it? Well, what a shock. He then tells his prophets to write down that he did what he said he would do. I said I would do it. I did it. Now, write down that I did it. And finally, then he instructs his people over and over and over to remember that he said he would do it, he did it. Remember that he did it. For, for a chi little child at a Passover Seder who gets to lead off by saying, why is this night different than any other nights? And the oldest might say, because the Lord said he would do it and he did it and we're remembering that he did it. So if you'll watch, there's a, most of the scriptures are all tied up in the fact of what he intends to do, uh, warning that he's going to do it, doing it, and then reminding everybody that he did what he said he would do. Uh, now, what's the purpose of all this? Well, if we're going to take this idea that he will declare what he's going to do, that's the pattern, and then he did what he said he would do, why does he do it this way? Because, for instance, if he had intended to uh, execute the great reconciliation, the atonement, he could have done that without telegraphing so long by all these prophets that it was going to happen. He could have just done it. For Sodom and Gomorrah, he could have just done it. What is the big to deal about to deal? That's, that's a word. Uh, it's like to do and to deal. Uh, to deal. Uh, you can go home and 
say, hey, you know, that's one of the things I learned from Brother Hinckley. We're going to deal. Um, why is it that he spends so much time and spiritual and scriptural energy in declaring what he will do and telling us that he did what he said he would do? What's the to deal with that? Well, if you think about it, uh, it's one of those things that if we go back to the, the uh, lectures on faith uh, written at the time of the prophet Joseph Smith, it says that faith is a principle of action. In other words, it's one thing to have knowledge about something, but I think faith crosses over in knowledge about something impels me to do something. It's not just knowledge. Oh, how many planets are there? Oh, I can count. It's learning something, understanding something that says, now, what I'm, I am now, that I know that what he will do, now the question is, what will we do? And if we find that we worship a, a God who tells us what he's going to do, and that he did it, that builds trust, that builds faith. We can have faith on his words, that if he says he's going to do it, his words come back fulfilled, always, he says. And if that's going to happen, now the onus is on us to say, okay, if he says this, then as, as uh, President Boyd K. Packer used to say, therefore what? Now what am I supposed to do now that I know this? Now that I have that knowledge, what does it require me to act and to do? And the only way that I know that it's, and, and will impel me to have faith and to have action is by trusting in somebody who says that they will do what they say they will do. That's why for so many uh, relationships, uh, when trust is broken, man, that's a hard one to capture because it takes time and consistency over, over some period of time to be able to rebuild that trust enough that people will act and even if it's a matter of just being vulnerable or being more open or being able to love again they need to know that they can trust and the only way to know that they can trust is when someone declares what they will do and then they do it it's it's a very simple thing so i'm always telling somebody in a relationship you can promise all day but guess what husband she's going to be watching your behavior more than listening to words. And it's our behavior that betrays who we really are and how we really operate. It's God's behavior as documented carefully by prophets that tell us who he is and how he works and how and who to worship, Doctrine and Covenants says, and that it's happened enough consistently when we look at it in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and during the restoration and everything. He does what he says he will do. Therefore, it's okay for me to go ahead and put myself on a faith limb. I'm going to hang out and do some things based on my belief and my faith. I'm going to choose to believe that he does things 
Why? Because he has this pattern of always doing them. Now, so when we talk about the promises of uh, our heavenly parents to us as their children, the promises given to the fathers is a wonderful thing, but it, it's, if it's just going to be pure knowledge of what God told Abraham would happen if Abraham was faithful, it really doesn't make a twig of difference for us as we sit here today. Unless that promise made to Abraham, that promise made to Enoch, that promise made to Joseph Smith, that promise made to President Nelson means that if he's going to promise something to them, what does it require of me? That's our grace covenant. I'm going to give you something. Here's what I'm requiring from you in return to complete the covenant. It's the grace covenant we've talked about a number of times. So, what does that require of us? Well, maybe one of the best uh, demonstrations of what is required as our part of the grace covenant and what it is that he needs from us um, was demonstrated in this interchange uh, between an attorney and probably a Pharisee and the Savior. The, the pattern was always uh, at that time is that a teacher sits and people sit with him and listen. Now, when, when a student has a question of the teacher, they would stand up. It's kind of like raising your hand, only they would stand up. And I'm going to stand up so that I can be recognized, so that I can ask a question of this esteemed teacher. Um, now, that's what's going to happen here, and it's a little bit hard completely to understand how much of this was an honest question from this attorney, and Luke wanted us to make sure that we knew that it was an attorney. Uh, that would have even added residence, I think, in the Greek world. And how much of this was an honest question being asked by somebody uh, who really wanted to know? So, and th this is a familiar interchange in Luke. A certain lawyer stood. He's going to stand up in the full tradition of asking a teacher. A certain lawyer stood tempting him, Luke says. Luke believes he knows. I think he was tempting him. Tempting him and saying, Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, it's an interesting question, isn't it? You try and walk up to any billionaire you happen to come across. I know that happens to you on a regular basis. Come up to a, uh, a billionaire and say, What do I need to do to inherit your fortune? <laughs> they would probably say, uh, be born into my family, um, to, for starters. Uh, inheritance is something that we inherit. It's not something that we typically earn through our worthy efforts. But he's going to use that term. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I think what he's actually doing is repeating back to the Savior words he's ha heard the Savior talking about in about being able to inherit eternal life. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, the Savior says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Um, again, that's why I think there's a good chance on this that this is probably a Pharisee who's going to really be uh, bound by the law. Because remember, the law was not just the law of Moses as, as recorded in Leviticus. The law of Moses was the additional Mishnah, the additional traditions and sayings of the rabbis that had been added to it over time uh, to really clearly define everything. So you really don't want to make sure that you screw up. So you're going to have all these additional laws. And that was considered also to be part of the law uh, to the Pharisees. To the Sadducees, not so much. Sadducees just wanted to know what, what they had to do to become like the Romans. That's, that's our big key. But for the Pharisees, I want to know. What is it? And so the Savior says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? What do you think? It's always helpful to put it back on them. And he says, it answers... And, this, and by the way, this is coming right back from what the Savior has said. The Savior put two things together that you don't find anywhere else. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's, this is the Shema. Uh, and with all your understanding. The Hebrew word on this last one is with all your oomph. It's a, it's a oof, wow. With all your strength and with all your oomph. Okay? And in his, in his writings, the, the Savior had added one more. And, it's because he's going to reach over to Leviticus 19, and he's going to pull that one out and go, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, well. I think this is where the attorney was actually going. Yeah, I've done this one. I, I, I've kept the law, therefore I know that I have loved the Lord with all my heart and strength and all my obedience. Yep, that's that's love. I've done I've done done that thing. Okay, but the, it's the second one that's shady, and love your neighbor as yourself, because Leviticus nineteen, um, and I, I think I chose not to put it in here. Leviticus nineteen has two things to it. On one part, it says, "Who's your neighbor?" It says, "Your neighbor. You're supposed to love those of your flesh, of your blood." And what that would mean to a believing Jew at that time would have been, uh, I'm just supposed to love the Jews around me. However, farther down in Leviticus 19, it says, uh, and any strangers that come into your midst, you were, you were a stranger in Egypt, they're a stranger in your land, love them too. Now, watch Watch what this lawyer is doing, because if this is, if, if we're anywhere near the temple, there are Romans listening. There are Roman soldiers probably making sure this doesn't go sideways on them. And love your neighbor as yourself. So you know what the next question is, right? When, when the Savior says, well, you answered correctly, do this and you will live. Wait, 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 wait. I've got that other question. Um, who's my neighbor? Now, let me just define for a second who my neighbor is. So let, let, let me say this differently. Uh, Jesus, tell me who to love and who to hate. Who is it all right to hate? 
the Essenes over at the Dead Sea Scroll, or Dead Sea, are writing in their writing, the community scroll, that it's all right to hate your neighbor. And I know you addressed that in your Sermon on the Mount. But I'm really going to, I want to nail you down here. Who should I love and who should I hate? Just what, so I want to make sure, because I do love the Lord with all my heart, I just want to know who to hate. That's the underside of who's my neighbor. Um, so, now, we know where, the, we, we know where uh, the Savior goes with this, right? Uh, because this actually then gets us um, to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or the parable of the wounded man is probably a better framing of, of the title of that. Uh, so we're going to get the parable of the wounded man and his healing at the hand of the Good Samaritan, which we know really well. We're not going to repeat that. But now the significant thing here is what the Savior does at the end of this parable that I think makes all the difference in this. Now, here's what he does. The Savior says, which of these three, remember, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three seems to you to become a neighbor to him who fell among bandits? Because you were, because here's the expected question that would come at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, who was the neighbor? Well, it was the wounded guy. He, it, the wounded guy was the neighbor, and yes, the priest should have taken care of him, and or the Levite, or uh, I don't know about the Samaritan, but but the Savior turns this and says. Which of the three became a neighbor to the one who fell among bandits? The neighbor is not to be the wounded guy. The neighbor is one of these three possibilities. Now, the attorney has nowhere to go with this. The answer is blaringly obvious. Which one became a neighbor? Well, the one who showed the kindness to him. Yeah, there's, there's no other way to go with this. Look at what the Savior just did, though, in this. Because we want to be able to think, if I ask you who your neighbor is, you're going to go, well, it's the guy in my cul-de-sac or the guy in my neighborhood. That's my neighbor. In this case, the Savior just redefined neighborness from who do you live next to to who are you ex expressing kindness towards. The Samaritan was from Samaria, even though symbolically this was the Savior, that he was really, he was the Samaritan. Um, but this Samaritan ain't from here. In this story, the Samaritan would be from Samaria. He wouldn't be from Jewish Jerusalem, nor would he be making his home in uh, Jewish Jericho at the bottom of that, 
that very desolate road. Man, that's it's a very desolate place down to Jericho. Those are both Jewish enclaves. Herod had his main, one of his main uh, uh, homes, palatial palace in uh, Jericho. If you're just going to use the title of neighbor, the Samaritan in no way could be a neighbor. But the Savior turned it to say, who is going to become a neighbor? And the attorney has to say, a neighbor is one that shows kindness. It's, in other words, it's not about where we live. It's about what we do. That defines neighbor. Jesus said unto him, Depart, and do likewise. Likewise meaning, rather than, rather than stand here and try to decide who to love and who to hate. What's he saying? Go be kind to whoever you come in contact with. Be kind and go from there. Reach out. Because in that moment of kindness, you become a neighbor to those in need. Well, that, that's, quite, that's quite a statement. So, in other words, the real question is not, who is my neighbor? But the real question is, how do I neighbor? One of the covenant promises that I make as part of my grace covenant is to neighbor verb and to express kindness now I, in my own little research and I, I tend to, to do this because th this stuff is always fascinating to me and I found something that uh, I wanted to, to share with you that I just think adds richness uh, to this text I went looking for the because I knew that uh, Neighbor was, was uh, mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. That's a time when I can actually go back to the, to the ancient Hebrew and see coming out of the Septuagint, you can actually go back and look at the Hebrew word roots for these words. Uh, and, and if you ever want to do that, just keep in mind the blueletterbible.org. Blueletterbible.org gives you a chance to kind of go back and search, and it's not hard to do. So I went looking for neighbor that was of the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is raha. And raha in Hebrew means, uh, are you ready for this? Uh, you're going to have learned something today that you can share with family and neighbors, those you're going to be kind to. The word raha, neighbor, means to feed or to shepherd. It doesn't mean to live next to, <laughs> live in close proximity to. The word raha means to shepherd, to feed, to nourish. Well, that set off all kinds of lights for me. And, in, and actually the way that the Savior was using the root word for neighbor, raha, probably in the Aramaic, he was speaking to a, a Jewish attorney would have gone right back to this you're going to go out who's good uh, uh, a raha 
would feed and shepherd a wounded man. And it wouldn't matter where they lived. So that, that has all kinds of salience, as in you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you feed you? Well, then feed them. Okay? Feed and nourish the people around you as you would yourself. Those that you come in contact with that need feeding, that need nourishing, that need shepherding. Peter, lovest thou me? Then what does he say? Well, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Ah, neighbor my sheep, feed my sheep, nourish them. Should make uh, plenty of sense to us, I think. Now, perhaps maybe one of the, uh, the clearest senses of how this works, I think comes in Alma's baptism interview that we find in Mosiah 18. Uh, it's one we're very familiar with, but I want, you to, I want you to listen carefully to what Alma is not saying. Remember that he has this group of people. They've, they've come out of King Noah's uh, influence. He's been teaching them at the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. Uh, probably a well-known place. They're going to be at the waters of Mormon. And then he's going to ask, as he's been teaching them, it's like something, ne what's, what's the next thing? What do we need to do? We now have this knowledge, this understanding of where Abinadi was trying to, what he was trying to do, and then what King Noah was trying to clamp down on. That's why he killed Abinadi. And we now have this knowledge. And then he says, now, what's, so what's the baptismal interview in, for Alma? He says, okay, look, guys. As ye are desirous to come into the raha, the fold of God, the neighborness okay, of God, and to be called his people. So what you're telling me is that you want to join with us into a, a group. You want to join us. Now, listen closely. There's nothing being said about remission of sins here. And if you go back earlier, they had, re they had already repented. That process was well underway. The remissioning of sins through the Spirit. You're, what are you asking to do? You're desirous to enter the fold of God. Let me explain to you what happens to those inside this fold of God. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. Are you willing to bear one another's burdens? See, in this fold we do this. In this covenant community we're going to create here, we bear one another's burdens. That's what we do. And some are stronger, and some are weaker, and some are more understanding, and some are not, and some are old, and some are young. So it's not, we're not always going to be bearing the exact equal amount of burden. Some through woundings and scars and histories uh, are going to be carrying a heavier weight 
than others. And, and it may require us that we're bearing a heavier burden for somebody else. Or it may be a period of time where we are weakened by trial and struggle and we're not bearing very, we're not capable of bearing very much. At that point, people will step in and bear your burdens for you. Um, I've mentioned, I mentioned a time in our life when we had a number of kind of traumatic things going on in our household. Um, and I had a very um, wise uh, high priest group leader stand in my kitchen and say, Kevin, you belong to the ward right now, and we have you. We're going to bear your burdens for a period of time. And he said it while the bishop and his sons were busy cleaning up a, a hot water heater that had blown, and they were moving things out of my garage. Uh, they were helping me bear a very stinky burden of removing things out of my garage so that they wouldn't be destroyed by water. We belonged to the ward at that moment. Very touching moment, very teaching moment, but from a very wise man. Okay? In our covenant community, we bear one another's burdens. In our covenant community, you need to be willing to mourn with those that mourn. He's not saying, find those that are mourn and take them to a funny movie. Or try and help them not mourn. He just says, mourn with them. Grieve with somebody who's grieving. Don't steal their grief from them while they go through a normal process. of Mourn with them. Don't, you know, leave them alone because they're mourning. You know, they might tear up. We don't want to do that. Or go, go tell jokes so that they'll be lighter. Um, no, he's saying, okay, bear one another's burdens. Willing to do that? Yes. If that's, what, if that's what we're going to do inside this covenant community, let's do that. Are willing to mourn with those that mourn? Yes, we'll do that. And comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Notice that each one of these pieces here are about what you will do for other people. It's not about, do you want to be baptized so you can have remissions of, of sin so you'll be clean? You've, already, you've done that. You've done the repenting. Now the next step, though, is to come into the fold of God, which is this covenant-promised community of people that uh, bear and are mourning and are comforting. Then he says, and to stand as witnesses of God in all times and in all things. Now we might say, okay, that's another item on the list. I don't think that, that, that could be true. My take on this would be that what we just watched was a progression from lighter to deeper. If I'm going to come into the fold and immediately start bearing another's burdens because I can't and mourn with those that are hurting and then I'm going to comfort those that then stand in need of comfort after they have mourned because of the burdens that they were carrying 
as not a shock that the next step then would be to then stand as a witness of God. What greater witness could we have that we are of God than if we comfort and mourn and carry? This is exactly what the Savior was trying to say when he said, um, by this shall other people, men and women, know that ye are my disciples. How will they know? How will they distinguish you from other people on the planet? You love one another. That's how you'll do it. And that's how you'll be known. I don't think this is standing as witness, knocking on doors to tell them the good news of the gospel. I think this is very much uh, about being able to uh, recognize all of these things and that that then creates in us the witness that says who we are. We love one another. We comfort, we mourn, we bear. And that bears witness of the Christ. Now, uh, can we kind of in uh, in well and then he finishes with this before I move on here now I say unto you if this be the desires of your heart if this is who you are if you want to bear witness of God through your loving actions to if you want to neighbor What of you to be against being baptized? In other words, for them, baptism was less about remission of sins and much more about entrance into a, a, a community of believers that loved. And they wanted to be part of that. And baptism was the outward si signal and sign that they had entered into that fold. It was initiation, in a sense, into a very sacred uh, community, very special club of those that wanted to serve God by loving his children and neighboring. If that's the case, then baptism was an initiation into that fold. And I think if you'll track through in the Book of Mormon, you'll find that that was really the way that they understood this mikviot, the, the cleansing experience that was an outward signal of, I'm, I'm with you, and I will be part of other cleansed individuals, and we will pull together as one, and we will neighbor one another. Okay. So, if you're going to do that, then you will witness before God that you have entered into that covenant with him and with us. So, um, and if you'll do that, you'll have his spirit. <laughs> this keeps getting better, right? Okay, so I want to... I'm going to skip over this one. I just I, I want to finish today with uh, by quoting from that uh, <laughs> that great prophet Fred Rogers. We know that Mr. Rogers 
his first intent was to be a minister. I think he always had ministering in his heart. It's just he decided that his ministering would be with kids. Because if he could minister to kids, they would grow into adults that would carry what it is that he had tried to teach. And, and it all kind of comes out in his theme song, doesn't it? Who can't quote this? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a beautiful day for a neighbor. Now listen, listen to his Christianness come pouring through here. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Inside this neighborhood, this fold, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, and then he repeats, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Let me neighbor you. Beautiful sentiment. Okay? Would you please? Won't you please? Please. Three times. Won't you be my neighbor? So simple. So clear. And, and fed into us as, as children an understanding of who are the people in my neighborhood. And it turns out that it's not about location. It turns out that neighboring and loving was more about the kindness that needed to emanate from that. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I bury my testimony that our part of this covenant of grace that we have received this grace that we hold this gift and endowment of blessings that we receive is that we learn to love like he loves that we learn to neighbor and feed like he loved that we that we uh, bear that we comfort that we mourn and that we witness that we are followers of Christ by our very actions in the way that we extend kindness to other people. I bear you my testimony that the Lord intends that we become like Him by learning how to love like Him. And I bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.